This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. on Thursday, July 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as cases continue to rise, the governor pushes back on a statewide mask mandate and introduces a PPE program for schools, churches, and small businesses. Then we examine the constitutionality of the Trump administration withholding education funding and legal protections for teachers as they potentially return to campus. Plus, civil rights-era foot soldiers relive a painful history as recent events re-energize protests over systemic racism. And in today's book club, an author's debut novel takes a deep dive into Mississippi's past while bringing a civil rights-era murder to the forefront. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is experiencing a higher rate of coronavirus transmission in the first half of July than the state did in the first two months of the pandemic. Since July 1st, the Mississippi Department of Health has reported 10,664 cases of COVID-19. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the widespread transmission is putting tremendous strain on the hospital system. We continue to see ongoing outbreaks in nursing homes uh, more and more every day. If we look at our hospitalizations, we're seeing increased hospitalization rates, which is not surprising. Again, something we expected and have have seen worsening over the past couple of weeks. If we look at the daily number of patients admitted with a confirmed coronavirus, it's increased pretty significantly. Um, As early as June, or recently as June, uh, June 14th, we were admitting about 40 patients a day with coronavirus. And now we're admitting, on average, 87 coronavirus patients a day. This is confirmed patients. If we look at the breakdown of hospitalizations, of course, most hospitalizations are not from coronavirus. They are from other entities. But if we look at the ICU admission, or or currently patients with ICU admission, um, there are 240 that have coronavirus versus um, people who don't have coronavirus in the ICU is 473, so approximately one-third of our entire ICU capacity is occupied with coronavirus. It's a remarkable proportion. This is something we'll continue to watch closely and work closely with our physicians and hospital partners to try to make sure everybody has access to the best possible health care. The best thing we can do for our hospital is to keep spreading it, is to keep from spreading in the community. Again, uh, using masks, uh, maintaining six-feet separation, Uh, small groups only, and stay home when you can. The stress on the system has resulted in calls for a statewide mask mandate, most notably from the State Medical Association. In neighboring Alabama, Governor Kay Ivey has announced a statewide measure. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves is instead taking a more targeted approach, ordering residents in 13 counties to wear masks in public spaces. He says a broader order won't be effective if residents are reluctant to comply. The words on the page do not matter. I can write all kind of laws down on the page, sign it as an executive order and say, woohoo, look what I've done. I've done good, great stuff. If people don't comply, it doesn't matter. And so as I've tried to, um, to do for a number of days and weeks, uh, somewhat unsuccessfully evidently, is try to 
convince you that what's important is that we issue orders in such a way that we get maximum compliance with my fellow Mississippians. You know, it would be a heck of a lot easier for me just to sign the order so y'all quit asking that question. Then I wouldn't have to deal with it every day. But I'm here to tell you, I think fewer people would wear masks in the counties where it's most important if that's what I did. Otherwise, I'd do it. But I don't believe that's the best strategy. Both Reeves and Dobbs have indicated more counties could be added to the list if they meet certain criteria. Dobbs agrees there's a level of effectiveness in the targeted approach. Certainly, without a doubt, if we had more folks wearing a mask, we would have less hospitalization, we'd have less illness. I mean, I think that's not in question. Um, I, I, I do agree that there's some validity to the argument of, of um, the extra attention that you get if you're one of the hotspot counties, right? So folks get a little bit get worried about that. So there is, there is an impact there. Um, I would expect to see more hotspot counties be added to the list um, before long. Uh, and when they get added, we're not, I don't think it's going to be a week sort of thing. I think it's going to be uh, multiple weeks because you don't see your impact for multiple weeks. So um, that's going to be ongoing. And, um, you know, uh, we'll continue to watch it closely. Whatever it takes, whatever the best strategy to get masks out, we'll continue to support that. Mississippi currently has 38,567 total reported cases of COVID-19 since the first case was identified on March 11th, with 1,290 total related deaths. As leaders encourage more Mississippians to wear masks, a new PPE program is being introduced. Governor Reeves made the announcement during a press briefing yesterday. Today we want to announce several new measures to help in the economic crisis and the health crisis that we are facing. The first is a hub for Mississippi businesses, Mississippi schools, Mississippi churches, and other organizations to be able to purchase masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and other PPE that is made in Mississippi. For too long, we relied on our nation's adversary in China to produce this equipment. Today, there are many small businesses throughout Mississippi who are stepping up, competing, and offering these critical goods. This was one of many brainchild of the Restart Mississippi group that we pulled together from the private sector. Monica Hargill is a member of the Governor's Restart Task Force. She says the program was developed to help address a need for local PPE. We realized very early on that access to PPE in a readily manner was uh, difficult and hard to come by. Uh, for those small businesses, and they weren't buying things by the hundreds and thousands. So um, with the MDA and MEMA, we were able to um, come up with a way to have this website, this resource, digital hub, where now all businesses can go, small businesses, large businesses can go and find products that are made both um, for Mississippians here in Mississippi. The online hub can be accessed at ms-ppe.org. Coming up, we examine the constitutionality of the Trump administration withholding education funding and legal protections for teachers as they potentially return to campus. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. 
We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. President Donald Trump is threatening to withhold federal funding from schools that do not return to traditional instruction in the fall, despite rising cases of COVID-19 in many parts of the country. Matt Steffi is a professor at the Mississippi College School of Law. We asked him if the federal government has the inherent authority to take such, such action. So if we think of the government as the branches working together, Congress allocating money, the president executing the law, the judiciary enforcing it, yes. But does the president unilaterally have the authority to not follow the will of Congress regarding expenditures that have become law? No. In other words, the president can threaten to uh, withhold education funds unless uh, schools do what he wants, but he, he certainly does not have the authority to ignore a duly enacted law to disperse uh, education. He couldn't issue an executive order? Not one that contravenes uh, the law, no. So in order for money to be withheld from states, it would have to be passed by Congress? That's correct. Now, there are, if we are talking about the great bulk of the appropriations that is in place, Mainly for very poor children under Title I and children with disabilities, no. The president, by executive order, cannot undo what Congress has done. There may be a little bit more discretion with regard to some of the COVID emergency relief measures, which are in the nature of grants. There may be a little with respect to that, but but. By and large, the short answer is no. The, the, that's the difference between lawmaking and the executive function. In the state of Mississippi, what is the power of the statewide Department of Education or the governor to be punitive, to, to have punitive damages against school districts that don't reopen? Well, and, and the state can allocate the responsibility for dispersing state education funds more or less in any manner that they want to establish by law. Uh, you, you know, a, a significant chunk comes from state funding. A significant chunk comes from local funding. A much smaller chunk comes from federal funding. Uh, as far The governor uh, has so far said that he intends to leave it up to school districts. Uh, I I would say that the governor's amount of coercive power is probably more than the president's, but is far from unlimited. Coming back to school, and I know this is a this is a whole different world. You know, some of these things just we don't know the answers to. But tell me if we know the answer to this one. If, say, a teacher, we're just going to use that as an example. A teacher gets sick. They contract COVID-19 and they become very ill, do they have any recourse against the school? Could they sue the school, the school district, the state of Mississippi, over forcing them to work in an unsafe environment? Realistically, employees, as against their employers, have the the remedies provided by workers' compensation. 
And so generally speaking, no, they can't sue their employers. As for suing the state, I think that's a long shot uh, of long shots. The state enjoys sovereign immunity and to, 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 to go through all the steps to show what the state did wrong that specifically caused this uh, teacher's illness is really, really a long shot. This is the consequence of living in a, a, a state of employment at will. Workers' rights are very limited. And I think suing in an employment context and suing the government in an employment context are harder still. Another scenario, a teacher has underlying conditions that puts them at higher risk of complications should they get COVID-19. And they're fearful of returning to school, to an environment where they're exposed to people. Do they have any legal recourse or would they lose their job for refusing to return to the school building? They have some legal protection that COVID presents a unprecedented issues really across every sector and discipline. There is some protection afforded by the Americans with Disabilities Act, but does that necessarily go all the way to protecting teachers who just say, I am not coming to work? I, I think that's an unsettled question, and, and I'm not at all convinced that, uh, that the law prohibits uh, the employer from saying, you know, your essential function is showing up to teach when we're open. If you can't do that and we can't accommodate you in some reasonable way, we're going to have to let you go. Uh, you know, the courts are ultimately going to answer that question because I think that's going to happen. People are going to get sued and, and the, the Mississippi Supreme Court, and the Fifth Circuit are going to answer those questions. But generally speaking, the employers win a lot more of those lawsuits than they lose, a lot more. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for having me, Karen. Coming up, civil rights era foot soldiers relive a painful history as recent events re-energize protests over systemic racism. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The police killings of black people in recent months prompted weeks of civil unrest. In many ways, protests across the U.S. look a lot like those held in the 60s when black Americans fought for equality. For many civil rights foot soldiers, it's been difficult to relive that painful history. But as WBHM's Janae Pierre in Birmingham reports, they say this moment seems different. We Shall Overcome became the key anthem of the civil rights movement, giving blacks hope as they fought for equal rights. Janice Wesley Kelsey marched in Birmingham with the Children's Crusade of 1963. The 73-year-old recalls singing that song before being arrested with several other peaceful demonstrators. 
Kelsey says watching today's civil unrest in America seems all too familiar. The underlying motive is the same, unequal treatment. And some of us are tired of being tired of this unequal treatment. Kelsey says the Black Lives Matter movement represents the same struggle. Only protesters today have a much bigger platform thanks to cell phones and social media. Watching the video of George Floyd's death, Kelsey felt angry and frustrated. It was a good thing that it was shown, but it was a painful thing to see. But it takes pain sometimes to bring people to a realization that something needs to happen. Melvin Todd participated in the Children's Crusade with Kelsey. The 74-year-old watched the video of Floyd's death several times out of disbelief with tears in his eyes. Todd says he's proud of peaceful protesters who took to the streets, but he says the mistreatment against them has been ruthless. What I've seen on television is much more brutal than what we had to face in the 60s. Todd says another key factor in today's movement is the wide range of races and ethnicities represented. We were not diverse at all uh, during the 60s. We were just a bunch of uh, poor black kids who wanted to see change. But now, today, the crowds are very diverse. Todd says diverse voices amplify the movement. Charles Person participated in the Freedom Rides of 1961, when white and black civil rights activists took bus trips through the South to protest segregated bus terminals. He says George Floyd's death created a kinship among Americans of all races and ethnicities. After Mr. Floyd's death, many people felt a connection with the, the movement and they sympathize. And that's the kind of allies you need to develop to have a successful movement. Uh, you can't do it alone. Person knows all about a successful movement. He was the youngest of the Freedom Riders. He and the others were beaten by Klansmen and white police officers in Anniston and again in Birmingham. The group is credited with ending segregation in public transportation. Now, at the age of 77, Person says the Black Lives Matter movement gives him hope. Change begins with young people. They are impatient. They want to see things change. Adults, we rationalize and we'll put up with just about anything. But I like their enthusiasm and I, I hope they just continue until changes come. Kelsey, who participated in the Children's Crusade, says this generation of protesters makes her optimistic, too. She says activists today will see progress if they keep making noise. Stay loud. Stand up for what's right and keep standing until change comes. And it's not going to be changed in a day or in one legislative act. This has a long ways to go. Kelsey says if protesters settle down and only hope for change, it won't happen. As the song implied for Black Americans in the 60s, she still believes we shall overcome someday. Janae Pierre, WBHM. Coming up in today's book club, an author's debut novel takes a deep dive into Mississippi's past while bringing a civil rights era murder to the forefront. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. 
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In today's book club, an antebellum manor serves as a symbol for a small Mississippi town trying to leave the past behind, but not without some hanging on to those vestiges. A man accused of a civil rights era murder is being tried again 44 years later, magnifying the tensions of class and race. In his debut novel, Some Go Home, writer Odie Lindsay sets the story in a fictional town called Pitchlin. You know, I think because I spent time in North Mississippi, that's where I imagined it. But, you know, it, it at once is sort of a, a, a collective of several uh, things that I saw going on that, that aren't exclusive to that area, but were small towns that were somewhat in decline and looking for a way to kind of revitalize or for a way to move forward uh, and at once tangling with their past, but how to move forward successfully. I see that, again, everywhere, everywhere I've lived. That seems to be a process, but certainly, yeah, just North Mississippi sort of cobbling together. The central focus of the plot revolves around an antebellum manor, and you have these very fleshed out, interesting characters. Let me just mention Colleen, who is not only an army vet, but a beauty queen, which seems like the yin and yang of a person. Right. So tell us about a couple of the characters and how they interact with one another. What brings them together? Sure, yeah. Uh, the Again, the town is looking for a sort of a way to revitalize itself. And after doing so, what they come to realize, it's about several families, is, and they're all connected to this civil rights era murder. And they all they need to reckon with that past in order to find a way forward. And at the heart of it is Colleen. Her uh, family member is the one who's going to be retried for that murder. So she's certainly thrust into the forefront. She's a young Iraq War veteran. She's been home for four or five years, married, house. She's run uh, for a local pageant, but she still feels torn up. And and while we come to learn that the war plays a part of it, it really is that retrial that forces her, as well as these other families, to kind of reckon with the home front. That becomes kind of the greatest adversary. And at the core of it is this manor in town that for some, it's the prized estate. um, And it needs to be sort of rehabbed. And for others, it needs to be torn down because it's the site of trauma and it's the site of this murder. And um, they're all connected to this land and they're all connected to this event. And they're all trying to figure out how do we move forward? How do we heal? Hare Hobbs is the one who's facing retrial. But the first murder trial happened in 1964. Your book is set in 2010. So what brings him back into court 40 some years after he was first tried? It's not necessarily sort of tangential to it, but but what I was thinking about is all the the work that Jerry Mitchell was doing, all the work that that other folks were doing about going back and reexamining these cases and looking at trauma and looking at um, how do we we face down these sort of injustices and and, and revisit. And at the moment when I was writing, we also had, you know, a historic president. Again, I was in a space where you looked at, at different towns and different ways in which we were considering who we were. It's not so much that anything necessarily on the page trips this process up as much as the reexamining has already sort of taken place and, and it is just moving forward as the novel begins. So everybody's sort of faced with this thing that's happening in person and it's all about how they're going to react to the process. Do you portray the manor itself as a character in this book? I think so. I think sense of place is so uh, incredibly important to us. And so the manor itself has taken on 
many different, almost characters, if we will, for many different families. For one, it's their home place. Again, for the town, it could either be the crown jewel of who they are. It's also a site of trauma. It's a place where, for some, for, for the victims of the person murdered, they've never had a say in it, and they have to sort of potentially face this face every day. So, yeah, I think it takes on its own life, it, and, and, and I hope a textured sort of nuanced relationship to how we consider our spaces and how we consider even particular houses. Um, certainly monuments are things that are more prevalent now, but how we look at these things and how they can mean something different for our community, even within a small community. What would you say the genre of this book is? Uh, I would say, um, I want to say Southern literary fiction uh, with a side of Mississippi encyclopedia. That sounds good. (laughs) The book is called Some Go Home. We've been speaking with its author, Odie Lindsay. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you speaking with me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.